Christ. Now this week, I have the opportunity to bring a message that I want to actually start with a question. Have you ever thought about what you would grab in your house if suddenly, now, <clears throat> Kent's, if suddenly your house was on fire, okay? If suddenly there was a fire, and it was a big one, and you, you had to grab just one thing, you had time to grab one thing, what is it that you would grab? Now, I know this answer, this question, it changes over time throughout your life. There are things when I was a child in my childhood bedroom out on the farm on Cascade Highway that I knew exactly what I was going to grab and save from a fire. I knew that my Thundercat action figures were safe. They were going to make it. They were coming with me. And then a little later on, by the time I was in middle school, I had one specific binder that was filled with my sports card collection that had my most valuable cards, my Michael Jordan collection and my Clyde Drexler collection. That binder was going to make it out safe. Now that I'm an adult, once my family is out of the house safely, uh, there's really only one thing, and that's our old photo albums that I would like to be able to to save. Now, I've got a life point for you right off the start in this message. It's going to kind of unfold as the message goes on, and that's this first point is this. The value that you place on something is shown by what you'll give up for it. The value that you place on something is shown by what you'll give up for it. Do you have anything in your home or in your life that, for whatever reason, you deem to be priceless, something that's truly to you priceless. Because see, when Jesus talked about finding his kingdom and discovering God's kingdom, he used terms like these. He taught that finding God's kingdom was like finding something of such incredible value that you would gladly give up everything else to have it. And today what I want to do is I actually want to look with you at the two shortest parables in all the Bible that come from Matthew chapter 13. And just in case some of you are worried, even though these are the two shortest parables in the Bible, you're still going to get a full-length sermon out of it, okay? Maybe a little too uh, full-length. Okay, so Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46. Let's go ahead and I'll read these to you. This is the parable we'll be looking at today. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovers hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Let me pray real quick and then we'll continue. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible gift that you've given us. We thank you that your word instructs us and it teaches us, it challenges us. And we just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would bring life to these words of Jesus to help us to understand what it is that you're saying to us today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first I always like to do this. Let's look at the context that surrounds Matthew chapter 13. What's Jesus up to when he tells this parable to his disciples? And what we know from reading in Matthew 13 is Jesus has actually been instructing uh, his disciples with large crowds of listeners. 
And he's been teaching them, uh, it must have been out in farm country, because he was teaching them using agricultural-themed parables. He taught the parable of the seed and the soil, the weeds, the mustard seed, and the yeast. And after these teachings, after these parables, it says that Jesus and his disciples left the crowds and went to a place where Jesus is now going to spend time with just his closest followers. And Jesus often did this. He would teach his disciples in the context of large groups, and then he would withdraw with his closest followers and continue teaching or or help them to provide them understanding of the teaching that they just had. And these parables that we just read come from a time period where Jesus has been teaching large group, and now he's just with his disciples teaching them these parables. And I believe that these parables that we just read and that we're going to look at today are particularly important for us, just as they were for those early disciples. They're particularly important as we try to grow in our life of discipleship to Jesus. See, Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples fully understood these truths. How do we know that? Because he even took time to ask them specifically, do you understand what I'm saying? Matthew 13, 51, Jesus says, have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. And a surprising answer, actually, from the disciples. Yes, they replied. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the truths contained in these Two short parables are incredibly significant for us as we try to understand how to live out this life that Jesus has called us to live in his kingdom. See, Jesus tells two stories, but with really the same point. And in the first story, which we'll look at here first, a man stumbles into a treasure randomly. We don't know exactly why he's in the field. Maybe he's been uh, hired to plow the field Maybe he's a a worker in the field. Maybe he's taking a shortcut on his way home. Whatever reason he's in the field, what we know is he randomly stumbles across a priceless treasure. Now, who hasn't dreamed of this, right? Who hasn't dreamed of this? You don't, maybe some of you know this about me, but I'm a huge nerd. And one of the things that I nerd out about, one of the things I love is stories about treasure, and for some reason, I, for this reason, I've always loved pirates. Since I was a little kid, I've loved stories, read books, watched movies, studied the life of famous pirates. I even made my wife, before we had children, go on vacation with me to St. Thomas so we could visit Blackbeard's castle because of my great love for pirates. Every week, I watch to my family's great... Uh, difficulty. I watch The Curse of Oak Island every week on the History Channel. I watch it every week because there's a chance this week they could discover treasure. No, but there is. One of the stories that I recently read was about a man named Terry Herbert. He's a man from Great Britain who lost his favorite hammer while working on a project in his field, so he called one of his friends to come over who had a metal detector to see if they could discover his missing tool. Instead, what they discovered was a hoard, the largest Anglo- Anglo-Saxon treasure hoard ever discovered from the 7th century, worth more than $5 million in his backyard. Treasure. 
We all dream of finding treasure, don't we? At some point in your life, we've all thought about this possibility of discovering treasure. And in Jesus' day, finding buried treasure was actually not all that uncommon. Because unlike today, they didn't have the same kind of banking system that now exists. So if you had a great amount of wealth or if you had a treasure, especially living in Israel, who was constantly under invasion, the way that you would keep that treasure safe was to bury it in the ground. You'd bury it in the ground. And let's say an invading army came to your village and you buried your wealth in haste in the ground and then you were killed in the invasion. Guess what? Your treasure remained buried. We know that in one of Jesus' parables, he tells about um, the unfaithful servant who receives the money from his master and what's he do with it? He buries it in the ground in order to keep it safe. This was a common practice in those days. And so here this man is in the field and he discovers treasure. And what's he do? He immediately covers it back over, reburies it, and then he goes and sells everything, absolutely everything he owns. And we're given these three words that I believe are really the key to understanding this story. It says, in his excitement, or maybe your translation says, in his joy. In his joy, in his excitement. Now, normally, if I told you a story where someone was forced to go and sell everything they owned, their home, their property, their life, if they had to sell, liquidate everything, they wouldn't be excited about that. They wouldn't be elated about that. They would be devastated because losing all of your possessions, losing everything that you'd have acquired would usually not lead to excitement and joy. But that tells us something about this treasure that this man has discovered. This treasure was so amazing and over the top that he was excited, full of joy at losing everything because the value of the treasure was so much more than what he was walking away from. And Jesus says, this is like finding the kingdom of God. The second parable makes the same point, except with a few really key distinctions. This time, the one who discovers the treasure, a pearl of great price, is not some blue-collar worker, but a wealthy merchant. And unlike the first guy, this guy doesn't discover the treasure on accident. He's actually spent his whole life out searching for this treasure. Pearls, by the way, were the most valuable jewel of the ancient world. Mainly because you have to remember how hard they are to get. You have to get deep in the water to retrieve them. And without modern diving gear that we now take for granted, getting pearls was extremely dangerous work. And the pearl merchant would have sailed all around the known world hunting for this one ever-elusive treasure. In fact, I found this quote from a famous Roman historian named Pliny the Elder. And this is what he says about pearls. He says, the first place and topmost rank amongst all things of price is held by pearls. Their whole value lies in their brilliance, size, roundness, smoothness, and weight. There have been two pearls that were the largest in the whole of history. Both were owned by Cleopatra. They had come down to her through the hands of the kings of the east. One of the, only the wealthiest of wealthy could hold, could own pearls. And it was said, I did some more research on these pearls of Cleopatra, and it said that these two pearls that Cleopatra owned 
where the vast majority of all of her estate's wealth and in today's value were over $4 billion. So a merchant like this would have made his living traveling the world, buying and selling pearls. But now he's discovered a pearl of such exquisite beauty that he is willing to sell all of the other ones. Sell his business, sell his house, sell his land, sell everything that he owns in order to buy it. Two men, one blue collar, one white collar. One with relatively little, the other one with a lot. One who wasn't looking for treasure and another one obsessed with treasure. But both of them encounter something of such value that it makes everything else in their life look worthless by comparison. This, Jesus said, is like discovering the kingdom of God. So here's my main point, and this is one of your fill-in-the-blanks. It is this, the kingdom of God offers us a greater joy. The kingdom of God offers us a greater joy. And let me ask you, is that how you view God's kingdom? That it is offering you, that it is wooing you with a greater joy than you could ever hope to ask for or even imagine experiencing in any other place. That coming to Jesus means that you can finally experience the joy that you were designed by God to live in and to experience. See, I told you in his joy or in his excitement might be the most important words in this parable. And again, normally if you had to get rid of everything you had, that would really lead you to being devastated. Yet in this story, we see that the value of the treasure so outweighs anything else that they don't, aren't filled with sorrow or disappointment, that they're just immediately, it's joy that they experience. So let me ask you a question. Is this metaphor that Jesus used to describe his kingdom about finding something so wonderful and so valuable that your joy, that your gladness just overwhelms you and it just is crystal clear that this is better than anything else. Would this be the metaphor that you would choose to describe your experience with the kingdom of God? That it's like finding a treasure that brought you so much joy that you gladly laid down everything else to possess it. Because I think many of us, if we're honest, would choose a different metaphor. Maybe you would say discovering the kingdom of God is like encountering a to-do list that I can never keep up with and always feel guilty about. Or maybe you think discovering the kingdom of God is like being tied to a ball and chain. It weighs us down and keeps us from having all the fun that we really want to have. But we choose to wear it because the alternative is to go to hell, so I'd rather be strapped to a ball and chain and be miserable then to end up in hell. And it shows us just how little we understand who Jesus is and what his kingdom is all about. What kingdom life, friends, is all about. See, this parable confronts a deeply ingrained myth that Satan has sowed deeply into our culture that says God is upset with you because you want to be happy. So here's another life point for you to write down. God is not upset at you because you want to be happy. God is not upset at you 
because you want to be happy. Many people believe this. They think in their worldview that sin and the world and the kingdom of this world, that's the fun stuff. And God wants to keep us away from all this fun stuff. So in order to be a Christian, we basically have to become monks who deny ourselves of all earthly pleasure. But friends, that's not God's kingdom. That's Buddhism. That's not the kingdom that God's called us to live in. See, as a teenager going to youth camp, I felt like the message at most youth camps was this. The problem with all of you teenagers is that you want to be happy. So we're going to give an altar call tonight, and you're going to come up here and you're going to surrender your desire to be happy. And I'd think, well, I guess I'd rather be miserable than spend eternity in hell. So I'll trade my happiness on this earth for in exchange for happiness later. But friends, I want us to think about it like this. Let me say on my wedding day, I was standing I got married right here. And let's say on my wedding day, I was standing here with my wife and we had written our own vows and she said, <clears throat> "I hereby renounce my desire for romance, physical intimacy, pleasure and happiness until death do us part. And I'd say, whoa, wait a minute. I don't want you to give those things up. I want to discover greater depths of those things together. See, did you know that it doesn't glorify God when we serve him out of duty? Far too many Christians have come to Jesus only because we are afraid of the alternative. We don't want to go to hell, so we'll come to Jesus. But see, fear is a lousy motivator for kingdom living. See, fear can never transform you into the image of Jesus. Let me ask you, how many loving, passionate, fruitful marriages that you've ever heard of where the husband and wife are scared to death of each other? So here's how I want us to think about it. Friends, God's not upset at you because you want to be happy. He's upset for you because you're trying to be happy in the wrong stuff. You're trying to be happy in the stuff apart from Him. This is what we mean when we say that He's a jealous God. Some of you struggle with that, set, that statement. He's a jealous God. He's jealous not because He's insecure. He's jealous because he knows that he is the only one that can be our source and supply. He knows that if we're going to live a joy-filled, happy life, that he has to be the source of that. So he's jealous on our behalf. He's jealous for our sake. He knows what's best for us. He designed us. He knows how we tick better than we know how we tick. And so he knows the only way we can live happy and overflowing with joy is for him to be at the center of our life. And it is that joy, friends, that we all need if we're going to sustain this Christian life. Nehemiah 8.10 puts it like this. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Not the strength of your will. Not your inner strength. Not some grit and determination and stubbornness. No, it says the joy of the Lord is our strength. See, the strength of your will is never going to be enough to keep you faithful. 
We have to constantly be wooed and drawn by God with a greater joy. Those who thrive, those who grow, those who are being transformed into the image of Jesus day by day are those who find their joy, who find their life from the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus has to be our first desire. Jesus has to be our first passion. Jesus cannot just simply be an insurance policy against hell. Friends, he's far more than that. And the kingdom of God, this thing that Jesus spent all of his ministry talking about, living life in the kingdom of God is so much more than just about where we go when we die. It's about the opportunity that you and I have today to live in the promises of God for our life. And I think so many people are missing out on this, frankly. So many Christians are known by being miserable. It's like a value for some people. How are you doing today? <clears throat> Better than I deserve. And you just think, that's not the life that Jesus has called us to. This fatalistic view. He's called you to kingdom life. He's called you to abundant joy. One of my memory verses recently was Psalm 4-7. I just love this. I encourage you, memorize this. Put it on your fridge. It, it's so helpful. It says, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I love that. You've put a better joy in my heart than they have when everything's going their way. When they've had their wine, when the farm is thriving, when all their bills are paid, you've put a joy in me that's better than any of that. Have you ever experienced something in life where all of a sudden you have an experience of joy that changes everything else? When my son Keegan was born, after Summer and I had been married 11 years, we were unable to have kids for 11 years. We really desperately wanted to have children, and finally we were able to conceive. <clears throat> and then Summer has this terribly difficult uh, labor where both her and Keegan's lives were in real danger. So after all of that, and the intensity, and the, the emergency surgery, and all these things, when they handed me Keegan for the first time, man, everything changed. You see, when I looked down at this miracle that we had prayed for for so long, if you would have come and said, Kurt, we just had news that your car was broken into in the parking lot. It wouldn't have mattered at all. Kurt, your, your house is on fire. Have you seen my boy? You see, because in that moment, I experienced a joy greater than what I had experienced before. Now, if I went back, and I had a time machine, and I went back to five-year-old Kurt sitting in that house on Cascade Highway playing with his Thundercats, and I told him that one day he would experience a joy far greater than the joy that he's yet experienced, that he would have this wonderful life and this wonderful family and these beautiful kids, five-year-old Kurt might say, yeah, but do I get to bring my Thundercat action figures with me? Because see, that for him was what happiness looked like. And 41-year-old me would look back and say, 
the things you're going to experience in, their, in your life are going to make that seem like nothing. But for five-year-old me, it, it would have been impossible to understand. And isn't that just like us? That God is offering us real, true joy and happiness, and we, accent, we are essentially saying, but do we get to bring our toys with us? Do you see the challenge with that? To obtain the field, they had to sell everything. To get the pearl, they had to relinquish all their other treasures because Jesus was making it clear they couldn't have both. And in order to take hold of these infinitely valuable blessings and the life and the purposes of God and the life that Jesus Christ is calling us to live, friends, we have to relinquish our hold on doing life by our own terms. Because you can't have both. To put your hand in the Savior's hand and experience the greater joy that He is promising us instead of living life with these counterfeit treasures, we have to let go of the counterfeit. One of C.S. Lewis's famous quotes that fits this idea so well is this. He said, we're still making mud pies in a slum because we don't believe in an offer of a holiday at the beach. Our problem is not that we love pleasure too much. Our problem is that we are too easily pleased. You see, friends, we settle for cheap, plastic, imitation satisfaction. The broken toys of this world, the immediate, the instantaneous gratification that they promise. And this, friends, is rebellion. Finding our satisfaction in the things of this world. Finding our hope in the stuff of this world. What is the logic in that when the creator of the universe is saying, I'm offering you something better? We believe the lies of our enemy. Remember what the first lie he ever told mankind was? First lies out of Satan's mouth was, God is withholding good things from you. God's withholding good stuff from you. And friends, <clears throat> that lie echoes down in, through humanity all through the ages. But what's Jesus say? Matthew 6.33. Jesus said if we would seek first the kingdom of God, His rule, His reign, His purpose, His plans, His way, His dream for our life, if we would seek after, if we would go after those things and His righteousness, then all of this other stuff, all these other things, would be added to you. See, Jesus says the order of our priorities is wrong. We're seeking after stuff instead of seeking after Him. And He says if you'd seek Me, all these other things would fall into place. All these other things would be taken care of. But who you seek first matters. Jesus is a treasure of infinite value. And he is offering you and I the right today to exchange, to make a trade, to take our filthy rags, our brokenness, our sickness, our pain, and exchange it for his life and his righteousness and his joy. Friends, this is a good trade. 
But many of us still struggle with this trait. Because at its very core, it's so unfair. It's so one-sided. And now you properly understand grace. Let's think back to this original point that I started this message with. The value you place on something is shown by what you're willing to give up for it. What does that say about your value to God? What did He give up to have you? His one and only Son. You see, this is another wonderful truth about the kingdom of God that we can see in this parable. The Father searched the whole earth for you, His priceless, beautiful treasure. And when He found you, He was willing to give up His most valuable treasure in order to have you. Hebrews 12, 1-3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners, so that you will not grow weary And lose heart. See, just like in the parable, Jesus sacrificed everything. And what was the reason behind it? It was joy. Joy of having you. Joy of knowing you. Joy of you having a relationship with Him. Joy of you living in and experiencing His kingdom on this earth. That caused Jesus to be willing to step down from heaven and to endure the cross. Why? The Bible says He did it for the joy set before Him. Band, I'm going to ask you guys to come up. And I've got something I really want you to think about this week. To actually to meditate on as we head in to this Lent season, as we head towards Easter Sunday. There's something that's just been stirring in me that I want us to be willing to consider. And that is this. Number one is that nothing in all of the universe is more valuable than following Jesus and his kingdom. And we should joyfully lay down everything else to pursue it. Friends, what are you holding on to? What are you grasping? What are you clinging to? That if you were to properly understand today of how much better what Jesus is offering you today is. What is it? If you would understand how good what Jesus is offering you today is, what is it in your life that you would continue to cling to and hold on to? What is it that you think is more valuable than what He is saying He's offering you is? And friends, I want to encourage you as we get ready to begin to worship, as we proclaim some wonderful truths to the Lord, I want to encourage you today, if you think of something that you are holding on to, that you are seeking to keep for yourself, If you think of something that you are trying to produce joy in your life that's apart from what Jesus is asking of you, I just encourage you, why don't you come to the cross and deal with that today?
If you need to be reminded today of just how valuable you really are, of the price that was paid for your life, of how much God treasures you, then come and grab communion and take it back to your seat. Receive the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that was shed for you. Maybe you're praying for someone who's out living life, trying to do life on their own. Maybe you would pray for them and come. Light a candle. Just represents that intercessory prayer. Because the second thing that I want you to meditate on is this wonderful truth. Nothing in all the universe is more valuable to Jesus than to have a relationship with you. And he joyfully laid down everything to pursue you. Friends, today is a day to stop running. Today is a day to stop hiding. Today is a day for us in the presence of God. It's where we started. He's here with us. His Spirit is moving in our midst. For us to come to this place and say, Lord, I have settled. I have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I've chosen to seek after my own understanding. I've chosen to do things my own way. And Lord, today in this place, I just want to say once again, your ways are better. Your kingdom is better. I want to desire what you desire. I want to, to think about what you think about. I want to call true what you call true. I want to live according to your purpose, your will, your way on this earth. I want to be more like you, Jesus. I think today is a day for us to make that declaration once again to the Lord.